0: Balam. Good morning, Battersea. Good morning to our online community and a slightly time-travelling. Good morning to those of you who are going to be listening to this on the podcast later this week or sometime in the distant future. This morning, we're continuing our series on the book of Exodus. You've probably had a Bible waved at you this morning, somewhat like this. If you've got one, grab it and open it to the second book in the Bible. If you don't, I can see there's a stack of about a half a dozen at the back if you want one. Uh, As Mike explained last week, we're turning our attention to this part of the Old Testament to see how it helps us understand the Bible as one big story. Um, Exodus is one of five books in the Old Testament, which makes up what's known as the Pentateuch, which is what it's called in Greek, or the Torah, which is what it's called in Hebrew. It includes Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it contains the earliest accounts of the Jewish people. So as with any part of the Bible, we have to remember what it is that we're reading. And it's good to remind ourselves that this one book is part of an entire library of books. We've got poems in there, we've got prayers, we've got narrative, we've got some prophetic stuff and some other weird stuff, but this is really sort of narrative, it's story that we're looking at this morning. The Bible was written by multiple authors across many centuries in very different environments, in different times and places. But what's most important is that we remember that it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written for us. We're modern, we're Western, and we're post-enlightenment people. So we come to it wearing sort of the wrong glasses. It's like we've got the wrong lenses on. But come to it, we can. Even for the most skeptical among us, it is a text worth studying, and it is robust enough to handle our scrutiny. This morning, what I have for you is an incredible story, a serious challenge, and I think a welcome invitation. The challenge immediately for us, though, is that as modern readers in a very hyper-individualistic culture, we often move too quickly to this question of, what does this mean for me? In doing so, we immediately take these ancient stories, this ancient history, out of its original context. So a more helpful approach would be to ask, what did this mean for the people it was written to and about? And for a story like the Exodus one in particular, which is a little bit strange, we're asking, what did these people come to believe about God and about themselves, collectively, as a people, as a tribe, and as a family? Only then can we begin to understand what it might mean for us. Now, I think we all like origin stories, right? I watched Captain Marvel again recently, and I have to tell you, now everything makes sense. Like, literally, everything makes sense. We might say the same about The Hobbit, if you've read The Lord of the Rings. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, like that one? And dare I suggest the Star Wars prequel trilogy? Ooh, I know that's a bit controversial. <laughs> Safer ground, perhaps, the epic multi layered drama, which is Monsters University. Where Genesis might be considered as an origin story for humanity, the book of Exodus provides an origin story for the Jews, which is retold annually in feasts and festivals, particularly known as the Passover. We have to remember that this is a story that they have carried through the centuries, not least through the Holocaust, Holocaust, where the Passover continued to be practiced, in the ghettos, in the death camps, and in the displacement camps that followed, and throughout the Soviet Union, in, in the 70s and the 80s. This was a story that meant an incredible amount to them. It's also a story that we know upheld and and sustained an enslaved and segregated black community, particularly in America, empowering the hopes of many. We might think of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and so many of those that we do not know the names of for whom this story meant a great deal during the Civil Rights Movement. Also for Oscar Romero, the Archbishop in Latin America during the 70s, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu during apartheid in South Africa during the 80s and 90s. In the broadest sense, the Exodus story is about an obscure group of people who have settled in Egypt, finding refuge amongst a great civilization until they are enslaved and then liberated after an extraordinary series of events. It is also about burning bushes, rivers filled with blood, plagues of locusts, the death of innocent children, and a sea that parts down the middle. It's got everything. <laughs> it is an epic battle between gods and. A, It is about powerless slaves against a powerful empire, but it's also a memory and a promise. And it would have been central to the life of a Jewish man named Jesus, more than 1,200 years later, who believed it was a story he came to fulfill. In fact, whether you're a fan of Ridley Scott's Gods and Kings, or DreamWorks' Prince of Egypt, or the classic and original Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, Bring It Home Charlton, is still considered one of the most enduring narratives of our time. So shall we see what the Bible has to say about that? Particularly chapters 6 to 11. In Greek, the common language of the early church, Exodus means literally exit, or departure, or the road out. In Hebrew, the language in which it was written, the book of Exodus is known by the first four words. These are the names. And throughout the early chapters of Exodus, we see that names matter. It opens by looking backwards to Jacob, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, to whom God had made a promise, a covenant, to multiply his descendants and bless them to be a blessing to all peoples across the earth, rooting this story in one family. In Exodus 3, we see God revealing himself to Moses by the name Yahweh, or I Am, and declaring, this is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. We also see five women who are each named, and together with Pharaoh's daughter play a crucial role in this story, particularly the midwives, Shifra and Pua, who defy Pharaoh's instructions and save the Hebrew babies. By contrast, Pharaoh is just the designated name for a king. It literally means palace or big house. Perhaps his name has been forgotten or is just irrelevant. There are in fact two pharaohs in this story, and neither are named, but the women are not forgotten. They are remembered as the first heroes of this text, ensuring Moses and his brother Aaron survive to play their part. The presence of names and a family tree in these early chapters provide a huge clue to the significance of this story, because although it's where we find many of the great biblical themes that we might be familiar with, Revelation, liberation, redemption, and formation, which we're looking at in this series. The subplot is about the very human questions of identity, purpose, and power. What we know in the lead up to chapter six at the time Moses was born is that the Hebrews, or Israelites as they were known, had been settled in Egypt for centuries, but they were still considered foreigners. They represented a vital economic resource but a potential threat to the stability of power. And so the people were enslaved. The male babies were killed, and presumably the women and girls would suffer in all the usual ways. Moses is rescued from this, and ends up being raised by the Egyptians. Talk about identity issues. Then, as an adult, he kills someone, and runs away to spend years in a place called Midian, where he starts a family, He seems content there, comfortable even, far removed from the suffering in Egypt. But God has another purpose for him. He sends him back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and free these people, whose desperate cry he has heard. But this does not start well for anyone. Moses is an outsider one way or another, and he is reluctant and ill-equipped for this task. And when he first appears before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's response is to say, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now Egypt's gods were numerous, and pharaohs were considered their almost divine representatives. But pharaoh has no patience for a god he's never heard of, especially one identified with slaves. And so he makes the Hebrews work even harder, and their conditions even worse. This does not really help Moses, who is trying to convince the people that he knows what he's doing and he's going to get them out of there. But then everything changes. We're looking at chapters 6 to 11 this morning, so there's a lot I'm going to have to summarize. And I hope that you will check that out later. But here are a few key passages which stand out, starting with Exodus 6, verses 1 to 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Then skipping ahead. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so begins this back and forth between Moses and God and Moses and Pharaoh, where Moses demands that the people are released each time. But as Pharaoh refuses and his heart grows harder, first by his own choosing, and then it seems by divine reinforcement, Strange things start happening across the land, affecting everything from water supply to farm animals and yucky skin diseases. (laughs) All kinds of natural phenomena are unleashed in specific times and places. Many of these incidents, which we collectively call plagues, are in direct confrontation to the Egyptian gods that they represent and go to the heart of Pharaoh's power. At first, Pharaoh's court magicians seem to be able to match these displays of supernatural intervention, but eventually there's nothing they can do. And although this is skipping ahead a little bit in the biblical narrative, it's important to remember at this time what Egypt comes to represent. Re- Egypt had a rich and highly sophisticated artistic culture and it was very wealthy from trade and military success, enabling it to build huge cities and extraordinary structures, like the pyramids, that we still see today. We should rightly celebrate the accomplishments of this extraordinary ancient civilization and recognize that it becomes embedded in the biblical imagination as a symbol for an oppressive kingdom more than a specific time and place. Egypt represents a kingdom opposed to all that God intends for his creation. It is a symbol of a kingdom where power is used to dehumanize and oppress, where the social, religious, and economic systems have become painfully dysfunctional, and its greatest monuments glorify death in an attempt to control the afterlife. In stark contrast, God intends to establish a kingdom of worship, rest, and human flourishing, where he will dwell among his people as their creator and their shepherd king. Although at times Egypt does provide a significant place of refuge for these people, it comes to represent everything opposed to the kingdom of God. And so, back in Moses' time, where plague after plague have impacted the land and its people, with Pharaoh promising to release the people in the midst of each plague, and then refusing again once the pain of it has lifted, so begins the ninth plague, Exodus 10, verses 21 to 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Egypt's sun god, Ra, was one of their most significant deities and considered their creator. He was often combined with Horos, the sky god, and between them they represented order and kingship personified by each pharaoh. In each of these chapters and plagues, we see that the momentum is building. We see a direct confrontation between gods, between ancient worldviews and types of power. Like the Egyptians, the Hebrews believed in the existence of many gods. But Yahweh, their God, has shown up. He's revealed his name, he has identified himself with them, and he is declaring himself to be the only true God. So this plague in particular challenges Egypt's entire power structure. Working through the natural world, unleashing its forces and restoring order again, Yahweh is demonstrating his power over these other gods. And we are reminded of the last time he did this. In creation, in the floodwaters, each time marking a new beginning, revealing his presence and his power to restore these people to their true purpose. Because of this, the Hebrews come to believe that he is who he says he is. But Pharaoh still refuses to let the people go. What follows is the final plague. Exodus 11, verses 1 to 7. Now the Lord has said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. But when he does, he will drive you out completely. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark or any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all your people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And that's the last brutal act. So devastating, so emotionally charged, and so final. All we need to note here is that this story began with the death of every Hebrew boy, and it ends with the death of every Egyptian's firstborn sons. As readers of the New Testament, we are reminded of the death of another significant son. But this is how this story is told here. And you will have to come back next week to learn more about that. (laughs) However, spoiler alert, the Hebrews do leave Egypt. They escape Pharaoh's pursuit and are led to a holy mountain to meet with God, where this story becomes embedded in their founding as a nation and they are given instructions for living a life that is to define them as the chosen people of God. This act of liberation is intended to mark a new start. These people are frequently reminded that they were once slaves, but they have been shown a different kind of power and been given a new identity and purpose. And later they will be described as God's treasured possession and as a royal priesthood. The people of God have been freed from serving Pharaoh in Egypt to serve their God instead. It was this narrative that shaped these people 1,200 years later, after one powerful regime after another had occupied their land and carried them off into exile. This story, in the words of the Psalms and the prophets, gave them hope that God would raise up a new leader, the long-awaited Messiah, to overthrow their current oppressors, the Roman Empire now, and to re-establish his kingdom. But Jesus was not what they were expecting. He was a very different kind of king, inaugurating a very different kind of kingdom. He was as far removed from their expectations of a new Moses as Yahweh was from the Pharaoh who had oppressed them all those years before. It wasn't that he fed the hungry or healed the sick or demonstrated power over the natural world. It was that the reality of his kingdom sat uncomfortably on the shoulders of those who thought they were entitled to it. That he acted like a servant, hung out with sinners, and died a death reserved for criminals, foreigners, and slaves. One way or another, slavery became a powerful metaphor for the first followers of Jesus, who sought to understand their new faith in light of their ancient history, They had grown up reliving this story around feasts and festivals every year, and it would continue to be the lens through which they lived their lives. The Apostle Paul in particular uses this language most powerfully when he wrote to the church in Galatia. It was for freedom that Christ has set you free, no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. But whilst these new believers were technically free, they were still an occupied people, surrounded by a system sustained by slavery, where people were bought and sold. And on top of this, many of them were imprisoned and killed for believing in this Christ who had apparently set them free. So where was the freedom in any of that? Are we talking about some deep spiritual truth or a radical social reality? What did it mean for them? And if, in spite of their circumstances, they knew something about freedom, Perhaps our definition of liberation might not be the kind the Bible is talking about. Freedom for us today is a dangerously familiar concept. Our culture's definition of freedom is becoming, if it wasn't already, our highest ideal, even when it's a great cost to ourselves and the world around us. We consider our personal freedom as almost holy, but there's nothing sacred about it. It simply means, don't disagree with me don't put limitations on me, don't slow me down, don't tie me up, and don't get in my way. Much of the time we're deluded about our freedom, believing that more of something, more of anything, will satisfy that deep hunger in us, and yet we work longer and longer hours to obtain it. More money and possessions seem to only complicate our lives and our relationships, and our online interactions, everything from our political convictions to our love of cats, are governed more by algorithms than we really care to think about. So although we are more globally connected than ever, and we can no longer hide the consequences of our choices in the environment, in unethical labor practices, or in the racism and the sexism that affect so many people's daily lives, Many of us still make these choices with devastating consequences for ourselves and others simply to uphold our own perception of freedom, whatever the cost. That is not the freedom we're talking about. It simply isn't freedom to choose whatever I like as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. When was the last time you checked? So if that's not the kind of freedom that we're to pursue, what is? In his letter to the first churches, and despite his early statement about freedom, the Apostle Paul sometimes introduced himself as a slave. Not because he's being held captive by anyone, although he had spent more time coming to Christ on the run, in prison, or under house arrest, but by using an everyday word for the most servile state one could have in the Roman world. Slavery was a fact of life, and Rome couldn't function without it but it meant you were owned by somebody, as their property. And for some reason, he wanted new believers to understand that he was now owned, or bound for life to God. In Romans 6 and elsewhere, he uses what we might consider this repulsive metaphor, not just to describe unbelievers before they came to Christ, who he writes are slaves to sin, but followers of Jesus afterwards who he calls slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. You see, Paul believes that freedom isn't about throwing off constraints. Ultimately, it is the human condition that is enslaved. To Paul, we are all slaves to something. It just depends who you serve. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson put it like this. The Christian is a person who recognizes that our real problem is not in achieving freedom, but in learning service under a better master. Recognizing and realizing that, we urgently want to live under the mastery of God. Now, this language might not be easy for us, but when we begin to recognize the impact that our so-called freedom is having on us, the expectations of others our addictions, the cultural assumptions that we are complicit in, perhaps we might begin to recognize the slavery we are already in and begin to seek true freedom. In doing so, we hand ourselves over willingly as slaves to a different kind of master, one who doesn't exploit or manipulate us, one who has identified with the poor and the powerless, one who remembers the names of the midwives, And instead of a lifetime of enslavement, we are received and restored as fully human sons and daughters. Remember those words of Jesus that SP happened to read earlier? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, My burden is light. The question for each of us when considering who or what to turn our life over to is, of course, can it be trusted? Can this God be trusted with my life or anyone else's, especially when we see Egypt's power still loose in the world and still prospering? We each have to work out for ourselves, but what did it mean for these people? The God these people encountered was present, he was faithful. He was powerful, and he moved against injustice. And what we see in Jesus is what this God would be like in person. And despite our very understandable trust issues, we see that this God is motivated by unconditional and sacrificial love, which led to the scandal of the cross and calls us to a radical new kind of freedom. He asks everything of us, but he gave everything first. This has deep spiritual and social implications for us. The Hebrews were freed from something to something, from a world of dehumanizing power to a community of worship and rest and human flourishing, suggesting that we can't just limit our salvation to a metaphor about spiritual slavery whilst using our freedom however we please, or decide that we're bringing down empires without understanding our role in it. Any biblical theology of liberation demands both. Theologian James Cone unpacks these dual elements when he describes what this looked like for Jesus. He is God himself coming into the very depths of human existence for the sole purpose of striking off the chains of slavery, thereby freeing man from ungodly principalities and powers that hinder his relationship with God. Jesus' work is essentially one of liberation. And there can be no reconciliation with God unless the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, and justice is given to the poor. The justified person is at once the sanctified person, one who knows that his or her freedom is inseparable from the liberation of the weak and the helpless. Because if we're honest, We easily identify with the Hebrews when most of us are found among the Egyptians. The truth is we're more like Pharaoh than we care to think. And before you protest too much, keep reading the Old Testament because these freed slaves go on to do some oppressing of their own. It is always easier to get out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of us. Which is why we must always keep Jesus before us after all, it is the truth that sets us free. So, it sounds like you and I have some choices to make with the freedom we have. Because although this story is about God doing for the Hebrews something that they could not do for themselves, it is also an invitation to make this your story and participate in the work that God is doing today. We can dismiss this story as something wild and weird and wonderful, a supernatural confrontation of power, a metaphor for spiritual deliverance, or a rallying cry for injustice. But I think we've seen that it is all of these things, and it provides us with a founding narrative for our faith that spoke of identity, purpose, and power then, and still does for us today. In Jesus, we see this Exodus story brought to life He didn't act in the way that it was expected, using his power to oppress or control, but he did something so much more subversive. We might be hungry for power. We understandably want to control our environment and the people around us, but the only thing stronger than power is love. And in Jesus, we see someone laying down their power in order to liberate those who are bound by it, and in doing so, overcoming it. Jesus inaugurated a kingdom of freed slaves for every one of us. Freed from serving something we've mistaken for liberation for which we can never get or do enough, but free to serve someone who is empowered by love. Those who knew Jesus, though confused at first, experienced this, that whilst for many their circumstances remained unchanged, their lives didn't. They were free on the inside, free to make brave choices, free to stand out from the crowd, free to interpret the smallness of their lives and the vastness of God's great love. And they were empowered to extend this freedom to those on the outside, to lay down their lives to one another, and to demonstrate that same power with acts of great love. This God is our God. In the words of Archbishop Tutu, he says, "'The God of the Exodus,' A God notoriously biased in favor of the weak, of the oppressed, of the suffering. He is a God who intervenes. He is a God who welcomes, who liberates and restores. Who knows our names and offers us a new kind of life. If we're willing to hand over what we thought of as freedom to a love and power so much greater than our own. We can learn to live like people who truly know what it is to be free. Should we stand? Lord, this story is as timeless as it is relevant for us today. Would you make it real for us? Would you make it real in our lives? Many of us see the world around us, and we, we want freedom. We just don't know how to get it. What you ask of us is hard, but we see freedom on the other side. True freedom. Your word says that where your spirit is, there is freedom. In your presence, there is freedom. And we know that where your spirit is, there is love and peace and joy, patience, kindness, and goodness gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And we want the kind of fruit, that kind of freedom in our lives. So would you come by your spirit, increase your presence here, in Battersea, wherever we are meeting with you right now. Come and speak to us. Come and meet with us. Amen. worship briefly now. If there are things that the Lord has been speaking to you about this morning, I encourage you to respond. Uh, After the song, we'll have a chance to um, come to the front if you'd like prayer for anything. But you can meet with God right where you are. For some of us, we only have to move an inch and we find God uh, right in front of us. For others of us, we're more like the prodigal son. We wanted freedom of our own and we took what we had and used our inheritance, as it were, to um, find freedom of our own, but it didn't satisfy. And uh, if you come running to Jesus, you'll find that he's looking for you. He's waiting for you. And he wants to restore that sense of sonship, that sense of being his child, of knowing freedom, and being restored to the person that you were always made to be.